I thought tonight I would begin by just checking in with you to see how, how you're getting along. How was it to sit uh, with the music post-debate? Just any questions, any comments, descriptions, something relevant to what we're doing here tonight? Please, Madison, please speak loudly. Music was really beautiful. Sit with the. The, the, the sit was the sit. Mind was the same. Mind turned off from the debate. It was just the sit. Great. It just reminds us when we sit that um, it really maybe doesn't matter so much what's going on. It really matters how we are. And if your mind and body are unified in the same place, you're not uh, building a monument to what just happened or what will happen, you can, things are, it's just the sit. Thank you. Anyone else? Love this. Perfectly enlightened after 40 minutes. David said he needed more time. Music slowed him down and his ability to to get calm and thought he needed more time. Well, the good news is, uh, the good news is, is that our practice is not about getting calm. And I don't mean this in any way to diss what you're saying. Uh, but and I say it's good news because uh, because if if it w- the purpose were to get calm, then we're happy if we're un- we're happy if we're calm and unhappy if we're not, and that's and that's the what would be considered the disease of the mind, having our well-being dependent on getting to a certain place or having conditions a certain way. Uh, that so to me, that's the good news. Um, the bad news is that you were trying to get calm. And even though all of us would like to be calm, uh, the effort to get there actually adds tension. So if, on the other hand, we're simply, we just simply make our, our lack of calm that which we notice, and then just connect with our body and our breath just and, and be with it, the sit just the way it is, the byproduct of that, of not going for calm, the byproduct is we become calm. So it's very important if you're meditating or if you're dealing with the debates, if you're dealing with whatever it is, to, uh, to notice if you are holding out, if you are uh, hostage to anything in particular happening. Any of you have that experience with the debate? Any of you want it to turn out a certain way? And did that produce ease of being or did that produce tension? Now, of course, if we notice that desire for things to turn out a certain way, when that gets mixed with awareness, when we know, oh, this is what dependent, being dependent on whoever I want to do well, uh, being dependent on that feels like. And when we notice how that feels, it's really hard to remain uptight. 
once we've realized that we're holding our breath or that our, our solar plexus are tighter, our heart is tighter, our throat is seizing, once that becomes part of our awareness, we don't need to make ourselves calm. Calm becomes the natural effect of seeing that we're holding on. We release. We let go. So letting go is the, is the effect of mindful attention. Uh, but if you, if you try to let go, it often adds a little more tension. So it's, maybe sounds a little backwards. but So always look for any kind of craving in the mind. And wanting, it to cal- wanting calm is a kind of craving in the mind. Now, the general desire for calm, that's a very wholesome desire. But when you're trying to get there, that can easily become um, a a source of tension, a source of being hostage to to how things turn out. Anyone else about the sitting, about the practice in general? Please, Carly. Carly. Close to the end of the sit, she noticed that she loved the music, noticed that one of the songs was familiar. Go ahead. Planting the seeds. It, it, it was the rose, Bette Midler, is that who it was? And how you plant the seeds in the summer and then it becomes a rose. Exactly, and what we're... I think here segue into planting the seeds of of mindful attention, planting the seeds of of uh, non contentiousness, uh, non not uh, the seeds of not being dependent on what what how things turn out. In time, produces uh, ease of being, calm, uh, freedom. I don't know if you were going there, but I decided to take that. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, the the content of the the music tonight uh, was not. I I enjoyed the the music, but it really didn't seem any noisier than most Tuesday nights, really. But it did remind me that it was not the conditions that I. It's not the conditions that I planned, and it really brought back a lot of memories about having ideas and views about what are our proper conditions for meditation practice. And I went with that, with all kinds of views when I went to practice in Burma. And some of you have heard these stories before. But I went to a monastery in Burma that I thought would be this kind of pristine environment for quiet and completely designed for meditators been imbued with practice energy for hundreds of years. There's a place called Tatanayekta in, in uh, Yangon. It's now, I can't even pronounce the new name of Rangoon. I'll just say Rangoon. Anyway, it was in Rangoon, Burma. And when I got there, it, um, it turned out that this complex had 84 buildings it could house as many as 10,000 people at the time. But actually, the buildings were there, but there weren't, um, 
it was just because people had been so generous to the monastery that they just kept building buildings. But there were actually about six to eight hundred nuns and monks. There were about 25, uh, 25 uh, Western or 25 lay practitioners from from other countries, and then another hundred or so lay practitioners from Burma. So there were about a thousand people there. That was a lot of people. And it was, there were constant, uh, there were constant visitors. People would come through the monastery all day long. And some of that was really beautiful because they'd see a meditator like me from the West and they'd, they would prostrate. They were so honor that I would come all the way to Burma to practice. But they would also want to strike up a conversation. Here I was in silence and everybody wanted to talk to me. And, and the Burmese, the lay Burmese, they, their notion, they had no notion of noble silence, so they were talking all day long. And the monks were talking too. So my ideas went right out the window. Not to mention that my room bordered on the, the edge of the property where there were Burmese households and Burmese homes on the, outs, on the other edge. And my particular neighbor to my little room in, in the foreigner's building was a, uh, a house with a family, and the wife of the family, the woman of the family, uh, was every afternoon pounding laundry on the rocks or something in her backyard. And she was accompanying that with loud Madonna music. <laughs> Not what I expected in Burma. My next door neighbor, the building next door on the property, was, as well as several other buildings on the property, under construction. And in order to, to get the, the metal to straighten the metal, the rebar, they had to pound it all day long, rebar, all day long, from morning till night. <laughs> That's on the external. The internal was I ate meals, my two main meals of the day, there were only two main meals, and they both took place before 10.15 in the morning. Five and ten. And they were drenched in oil. And I, within a few days, I had basically a raw stomach and pretty persistent nausea for six weeks. <laughs> Let's see what else. <laughs> it was hot. I had to sit do all my meditation under a mosquito net. I took buckets of water about six times a day and dumped them over my head. So I had a lot of nausea, had a lot of noise, and it dawned on me quite early that if my well-being was dependent on conditions being a certain way, <laughs> I was in a huge amount of trouble. And really, ever since then, it's, it's a, um, whenever things are disruptive or not as I think them to be, as I think they should be, uh, I remember that. And I also remember 
the Buddha's teaching on that's part of the second noble truth. Everyone knows about the first noble truth. Life has within it that which is difficult to bear. Everybody's life is marked to some degree by unsatisfactoriness because of change, because of illness, because of, just because of sickness, old age, death, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, being separated continually from uh, that which you hold nearest and dearest, you know, your things, your people, your, your everything. Uh, uh, everything is like quicksand. Everything slips through our fingers if you're born. That's the definition of birth. It's the leading cause of some version of unsatisfactoriness. Everybody knows about that and all the kinds of difficulties that anybody who is born deals with. The difficulties of change, the difficulties of, of being in a body, the difficulties of just the constant demand of life and everything about it. It's hard. And it's not an aberration. It's not your problem. It's our problem. It's it's um, it's just the nature of things. But the Buddha clearly reminded us that how we deal with this basic unsatisfactoriness, whether that turns into suffering, mental suffering, has everything to do with our reaction to what's going on. So everything tonight, however, however your practice was, had to do with the reaction in your mind. And you could say, stop reacting. Stop wanting things to be different than the way they are. Stop pushing away the way it is. Stop holding on to your view of how it should be. Great. Great idea. But we want to, he wanted us to look a little bit deeper than that, to see what the engine is that makes us hold on to how we think it should be, hold on to, uh, to get so bound up in, uh, in that state of dependency it's so bound up in, in our well-being be t- being tied to who wins the election or who wins the game. That was last week's conversation. We're just on to another sport this week. How do we get so bound up? What's the engine that drives that? And the Buddha basically said what drives our reactivity in general is this, is this habit of mind in, because of our re- reactions of liking and disliking and then not noticing what we're doing, a lack of clear perception, the habit of continually falling into, in general, wanting things to be different than the way they are, that we are incessantly wanting things to be other than the way they are. Have you noticed how little time we spend accepting how things are, how little time we spend in, with a feeling of, of ease and balance and contentment? That's not because outer things are terrible. They've always been terrible. They're always unsatisfactory. But it's, it has everything to do with this chronic habit of wanting things to be different. Now, again, he wanted us to go a little bit deeper into this habit of wanting things to be different, this reactivity in our mind. He basically said that these little reactions of wanting things to be different harden into... Reactions of liking and disliking and ignoring harden into to, uh, addictive patterns that we call attachment. And they, these attachments harden, generally harden, into, uh, harden four different ways. The first one is the attachment to pleasures of the senses, to be able to seek and find and, 
and fulfill the desires that come into our mind for, for pleasure. And we become that, that desire get hardens into attachment. And then there, the sense is I, there's no way in, unless I can go to this place, have this thing, be with this person, uh, get rid of this, there's no way I can be happy. My happiness is absolutely dependent on things being other than the way they are. And that just makes it how it is, just not absolutely not okay. I can't be happy. So a lot of our mind is, uh, uh, is a repeat of some version of why I can't be happy. And it usually, and it's very often around not being able to satisfy something that we think will give us pleasure. Anybody name a few things that you get attached to that you think without you can't be happy? Please. Sleep. That's a, that can be a kind of sense pleasure. On the other hand, that's a, that's a bodily need. That's not just, that doesn't fall into the realm of, of ordinary sense pleasures. But I appreciate you naming that. Please. Cookies. Cookies. I need cookies. I actually met someone who had a, a serious addiction to Toll House cookies, uh, chocolate chip cookies. No other chocolate chip cookie would do it, but those Toll House chocolate chip cookies, he, no, it was Chips Ahoy, I'm sorry, Chips Ahoy, and he could not stop. And finally had to uh, willfully renounce Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookies. Please. Things that are natural to, yeah, those are natural to want, but again, the, yeah, then, then it's the, totally attached and miserable, doesn't make it any easier to get those things, first of all, and two, any kind of attachment, even to something that feels so, so natural to want, uh, if you see for yourself that it brings suffering, that it brings burning, that it brings tension, that it brings... Uh, that brings a, a sense of the impossibility of, of feeling relief, then you want to really look carefully at how tightly it's being held. And that's why nobody has to tell you to let go in meditation practice. That's not what it's about. It's not about adopting a view, let go, let go. It's about seeing for yourself the suffering that comes from holding on. And then the, the natural response to that is to let go, is to... If, if you see deeply, if you really get deeply the, the suffering in holding on so tightly, if you, if you, as long, though, as your mind is more interested in the object than in the state of desire itself, you may not notice how painful it is. I mean, you may not notice the, the real suffering of it. You'll keep holding on to the image. So that... So in order to actually pay attention to this, we have to take our attention from the image, from the person, from the, from the possibility, to the state of, of attachment itself, the state of dependence itself. And that's, pretty, that's a big weight. Yet that feeling cannot, cannot um, coexist with, uh, with continuous mindful attention and loving kindness. You can't keep holding on and be mindful at the same time. So if you bring attention to that, it will ease your heart. 
It may come right back the next moment, but if you keep attending to that pain, it will open your heart of compassion. It will help you let go. Even that those most deep and natural kinds of longing. Yeah. The suffering about it is really, there's a lot of wiggle room. It's, it's much more optional than we know. The suffering is not necessarily fused to the pain. So what was I? Oh, attachment to sense pleasures. Second one, very much about uh, what we're dealing with tonight, conditions. Attachment to um, rites and rituals, how it's supposed to be done. It's, this is supposed to be a quiet place for meditation. That's what I said about Burma. That was my view of how it's supposed to be, rites and rituals. A meditator finds, just like the Buddha recommended, finds a forest, a quiet a tree to sit under, nobody to bother her or him. But you know, even in the case of the of the of the Buddha, all the monks they went into the forest and the tree spirits were driving the the monks crazy. It wasn't everything they it was cracked up to be. And of course, if they if they fought with how the conditions were, they would who wins? The conditions win always. Conditions of noise and craziness win if the demand is that they um, that the conditions be the way we think they should. So I learned that quickly. Attachment to rites and rituals, how things are supposed to be done in a retreat center. I had I had the my neighbors were a Korean monk and a uh, um, a Western monk. The Western monk was from Malibu. But the Western monk had been in Burma a little bit too long. And, beca- and even though monks were not supposed to keep any kind of food or, or anything that were, was offered to them by the lay community except for the meal that they were having, he started hoarding food. And he also began to be paranoid that the other monks were taking his food. And then he got into it with a Korean monk. It's not because he was Korean. He just happened to be Korean. They were from many different countries. But the Korean monk did not like the fan going around in the foreigner's meditation hall. So he turned off the fan, and the other monk turned on the fan. And they had the fan wars to the extent that they got in a fist fight (laughs) and were both thrown out of the monastery. (laughs) Attachment to rites and (laughs) rituals. So even monastics can go crazy (laughs) by being attached. Uh, It's no laughing matter, actually. So the Buddha spoke of attachment to sense pleasures, how our reactivity hardens into attachment, attachment to sense pleasures, attachment to to rites and rituals. The third one's very relevant to our political landscape which we speak of a lot here, attachment to views and opinions. People willing to fight, to shut their hearts 
to put people out of their hearts who disagree. Now, I know this room is filled with with people who at least from time to time tend to put out of their hearts the different political candidates of the of the party that they don't necessarily agree with. And this, in some way, is, you could say, is a natural reaction to someone we disagree with. But to the extent that it hardens into ill will, hardens into putting that person out of our heart, it, more, it suggests more about our attachment to views and opinions than it does about the correctness or, or wrongness of, of that particular um, person. So we don't have to agree with someone, but if it's possible, our practice is to not let that person fall outside the circle of our goodwill, the circle of our caring, the circle of our compassion, the circle of our... Um, our shared humanity, our shared, our shared sentientness, the fact that we are, we're all born. Uh, but yet we tend to demonize those who think differently. So this is my practice right now because I have, my tendency is to want to put the other person out of my heart. Do you want to say something, David? Yeah. Shocked to hear that. Really negative, and I don't like that fact that I have those feelings. Yes. When I read political commentary by them, it brings up actually anger. Yes. And I don't like the fact that I get angry, and I don't know what to do about it. Well, precisely what we do about a the longing for a partner and any other thing that we feel reactive to is we. Ideally, we take our attention from that person, from that party in this case, and we feel that sense of ill will and anger. We usually, especially when it comes to ill will and anger, we want to, we want to look at usually the general engine for ill will, anger, is two things. Frustrated desire. We want something that we're not getting. Two, wounded pride. And our pride tends to get very bound up in our views and opinions. So those three attachments really are the suggestion of where it is that we have tethered our identity, where we, where we become, where what it is we want, is become, we become identified with. That becomes our self-defining thing. How things should be is what defines us and what views and opinions others or we have uh, becomes our self-definition. In any place we have a self-definition, we are vulnerable. Any place that we identify ourselves. Because any kind of self-definition is a view. And as a view, it is insecure and unreliable. It's just a thought. It can never capture the, the, the greatness of your own nature, the sky-like nature that can include everything. When we narrow our view to, a view, to an opinion... We become small. We become easily, easily shaken. Uh, And that easily shaken then requires, because we're easily shaken, we tend to defend it with anger, with fear, with aggression, 
with all kinds of defenses. And then those opinions harden even more. So we really want to look at that. that um, we want to feel that anger. We want to feel what the engine is. And hopefully you want to get the pain of that. I like that you said, I don't like that anger. I don't want to feel that. And that, that's actually a wholesome way of saying, I don't want to be practicing. I don't want to be feeding ill will. And that's what we tend to do. And that's what self-awareness helps us to do, to see, whoa, how am I adding to this pain? Am I actually promoting well-being? Am I promoting peace in this world by demonizing another person or another party? Of course not. Even though I completely can appreciate that tendency of mine. I'm definitely working on the same issue. I won't say which party, though. (laughs) Wait, I haven't gotten to the last one. I just want to say the last attachment. (laughs) The last attachment, which really encompasses, subsumes all the other three, is attachment to the concept of self. Having having that um, holding on to... uh, to the sense of me, my, and mine. Me, my, and mine. And you notice that, that you, we, a lot of us watch the debates or listen, watched and listened to the debates uh, sitting here before the group tonight. And I could see that as I was listening, I could tell uh, what was happening to me is that it was all about me. It was all about how I was, whether my guy was, was doing well or whether, my, whether, whether I liked it or not. It, the tendency, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, that somebody in the back makes noise, which they did tonight. And what does our mind do? It's wrecking my meditation. It, everything becomes about me. And this is the this is attachment to the view of self. It's things cease to be just hearing the debates. It's what it means about me. And of course it's a natural thing to see how this or that it will affect our lives, but the quality of feeling that's associated with that all about me is often a feeling of tension. Am I going to get what I want? And are they going to agree with me? Are they going to do it the way I want them to? And it just reinforces the attachment to the view of self. And a view of self, a view about yourself, is not self. It's just a view. It's just a thought. And as a thought, as a view, it is another source of insecurity. And it is a source of agitation. There's a wonderful sutta called the Avatamsaka Sutta, a Mahayana Sutta that says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So how can we, how do we find that place of having no view of self? Having no view of self is any moment of mindful attention. Any moment of hearing the debate is the debate. Hearing a sound is a sound. Smelling a smell is a smell. Seeing something, 
before it filters through the what it means about me. And or seeing what it means about me as just another thought. That's also a view free of self. A thought of self is just a thought of self. It's not self. So it's not a view. A view is just a view. And if you're not bound up in that view, then it's just another thought. So we don't have to get rid of our self-views, but we have to become big enough, sky-like enough to notice them so that we can actually sit in that in that that sky-like immovability, no matter what our mind is doing, no matter what's going on in the politics, no matter what's happening outside in the patio, that our well-being does not depend on circumstances, that we are, that we are free, that we're not bound up. And, and that's really the possibility of practice. That's the that's what you're actually fulfilling every moment that you link a few moments of mindful attention together. You're, you are erasing that tendency to react, to, for those reactions to harden into attachment. You're actually erasing, moment by moment, the fixation on the view of self. So maybe it doesn't mean you disappear. It just means you're not so much bound up in your ideas about yourself. You can actually live Function, respond. The happiest you ever are in your life is when you're not thinking about yourself, but you're being completely yourself, your naturalness, and it's so easily missed. So we have work to do to love our enemies, our difficult people, to relinquish that tight fist of grasping at things and people, situations near and afar, to relinquish our views and opinions, to relinquish our dependency on rites and rituals, how things, how people are supposed to be, all that. Um, And how do we do that? We just stay where we are and open to it all. Even if it's a complete mess in our minds, we use it all on behalf of our love of finding balance. So may all beings find equanimity in these times of uh, joys and sorrows, the times of getting what you want and not getting what you want, these times of the world not conforming to, to how you think it should be, or people agreeing with everything that you think. May all beings be, have, find unshakable balance of effort, unshakable balance of mind, unshakable balance of heart, and care about this world and each other more than we can almost bear, but have the balance to know that things may not turn out the way we want them to. May all beings be free. So let's just sit for a few moments quietly, forget everything I've said. And even though I've said the prayer, may all beings have all these things, I also want to just add that, uh, that I, a prayer and a wish that any fruits, any benefits, any goodness, any merit, any, any, um, any benefit from our practice, that it be shared with all beings in all circumstances, in all directions, 
and that our practice today and every day, our life, our work, whatever it is that we do, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. A deep wish that all beings can live with ease, feel safe, feel healthy, be happy and peaceful. May all beings know a sense of well-being. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for your generosity for showing up and supporting each other tonight. Really, to me, is the one of the most beautiful expressions of dana, just showing up. It's not just about each of us, it's about all of us. And just a reminder, as always, that uh, we have uh, this, everything offered here is offered freely, the room, the teachings, but we, in order for it to continue, uh, we have what's called room rental dana, or if you like to, in more grander fashion, offer for us to be here, we have now the, an evening at Mission Dharma, where you have a plaque with your name, or if you can be anonymous, you can dedicate it to somebody, as a few people have. Do we have a plaque up tonight? No, no plaque up tonight. But we've had many, um, we've already had some offerings of the $150 it takes for us to be here. But any offering for the support of room rental is much appreciated. And if you want to make some offering, it is uh, if you make a check out to this church, the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church, put Mission Dharma on the memo line, it, it can be uh, tax deductible. You can uh, receive a notice from the church to that effect. So thank you for any room rental, Donna, and also the teacher, Donna. I offer my heart, my understanding, whatever it is, or whoever takes this seat. And the invitation is for you to offer support uh, if you feel to practice generosity in your way. So thanks for all of that. Carrie? Gangaji is coming to Santa Rosa. Okay. Okay, Gangaji, and she's an old friend of mine. She's fun to hang out with, so enjoy. Anyway, thanks for being here. And please practice every day. Love the Republicans. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.